Hi there, ma'am. How are you today? I'm fine. May I help you? Well, actually, I'm going to help you. See, I'm going to show you the most amazing vacuum cleaner. No, thank you. This is the last vacuum cleaner you are ever going to need. No, thank you. This vacuum cleaner is so easy to use. It is so light. No, thank you. Death of a Salesman will not be presented at this time. So we may bring you this special podcast. It's almost live. Still alive. It's alive! A limited podcast series about Northwest Television's legendary TV sketch comedy show. An amazing phenomenon. Featuring intimate conversations with the writers, performers, creators. Rustlers, cutthroats, murderers, bounty hunters, desperados, bushwhackers, hornswagglers, horse thieves, bull dykes, train robbers, bank robbers, ass kickers, shit kickers, and messages. Your host was one of them. I think I would remember a thing like that. Pat Cashman. What's the matter with you? Almost live. This <laughs> is just a real nice surprise. Still alive. Just a real nice surprise. In George Orwell's famous novel, 1984, he foresaw a time when Big Brother scrutinizes human actions and stifles freedom and nonconformity. But while Orwell was busy focusing on Big Brother, he completely overlooked the arrival of Little Brother in 1984. It was a brand new Seattle TV comedy show named Almost Live. And its very first host was a local guy named Ross Schaefer. He was a graduate of Federal Way High School and then the University of Puget Sound where he played some football and majored in business. For a while he owned and managed the country's only stereo and pet shop in Puyallup. Seemed like a perfect idea because when people think of stereos they naturally think of cockatoos. But after three years of that, Ross then took a daytime advertising job for the 28-store Squire Shop clothing chain. But when nighttime came along, he started showing up at local comedy clubs, trying out jokes, putting together an act. After some hard years of blood, sweat, tears, and heckling, he won Seattle's international comedy competition and hit the road as an opening act for people like Crystal Gale, Dionne Warwick, and Neil Sedaka. And then the chance to host a new local TV comedy show, Almost Live, came along. He took the gig for five years, but then jumped at a chance to host The Late Show on the Fox Network. He then moved on to other network programs. He hosted game shows, wrote a book, produced a comedy album, headlined nightclubs and casinos around the country. And then, as they say, he reinvented himself. Today, he's a top business keynote speaker and seminar leader, producing loads of human resource training films. He's authored books, Nobody Moved Your Cheese, The Customer Shouts Back, Are You Relevant? Not my favorite books. There's no pictures in them. Not long ago, though, he was inducted into something called, like, the National Speakers Hall of Fame. Nice place. But when he's not living there, he can be found at his home in Denver, Colorado. That's where I caught up with him in a Zoom call. Ross Schaefer is in the house. <laughs> not in your house. No, not my house. Uh, I, not in the doghouse either, I hope. No, I'm nice. not in the doghouse, no. No, I, thanks for thanks for uh, joining uh, me for this thing, I, which I don't even really know what it is, but we're going to take a swing at it. You, um, well, just, I'll make it easy for me. Okay. Anyway. How, how did you? I, I want to actually. Actually, I love the idea that Pat Cashman is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, he usually is. <laughs> I'm sitting on a bed of nails right now, actually. <laughs> hey, how did you uh, get tapped to be the host of this show, Almost Live? How not did to, that happen? Yeah, yeah, not to embarrass you. But uh, the, the genesis of that whole thing was that I was out doing stand-up comedy. And I think you saw me on either the Alan Thick Canadian show or the Don Aaron Canadian show. Doing I think it was the Alan Thick one. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, um, and then you went to Bob Jones, at, uh, who was the program director at King, and said, hey, there's a local right. guy here. Um, maybe we've done, we've done a pilot. We, we couldn't seem to do worse with this guy. He lives here. And so... I got called in to... Those were my exact words. We couldn't do worse with this guy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you got it exactly right. I thought, uh, uh, okay, but I didn't, I wasn't really interested because of my stand-up comedy career was kind of taken off and, and I was working yeah. in uh, casinos. and You were opening for like Dionne Warwick and... Uh, Diana Chris, Ross. Crystal Gale. Diana Ross? Yeah. Eddie Rabbit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I love a rainy night. I love a rainy night. I love to hear the thunder. Watch the lightning when it lights up the sky. I have an Eddie Rabbit story I'll tell you later. Okay. But, but uh, yeah, so then, so uh, John Powell, who was my business manager, said, hey, go talk to King TV. And, and you know, this is how, uh, <laughs> how arrogant I was. I said, well, how much does it pay? I didn't even ask what it was. I just said, what do you think it pays? He goes, we have no idea. But to go have a conversation with him. So I did, uh, and I left. But you were, but you were reluctant about it, right? I was. I was reluctant about it because I knew uh, that I was gonna. I had. I was booked to go on the road, and that was very glamorous at that time. And they said, after a good job, after they had a good job, what do they get as a reward? A couple of little roses are brought over. <laughs> that doesn't happen in a man's job, does it? You, you don't hear somebody. Hey, uh, I'll tell you, Ernie. We uh, we was watching you pull that transmission. You did a hell of a job. <laughs> So uh, me and the boys chipped in, got you some flowers. I lived in Puyallup, and so the, to go to, uh, say, Atlantic City or uh, Puerto Rico, or I, I don't know, pick the, the location. These people perform everywhere, and then I would be the opening act. It seemed pretty glamorous, and I was making yeah. uh, really good money uh, doing it. So I would have to stay at home, and I thought, I don't know how that would work, because uh, I've, I've got a career brewing. Let me ask you an impudent question. What okay. and this was back in nineteen in the early eighties. What was really good money? Uh, well, for for a stand-up comedian who was used to making yeah. fifty dollars a week at Wayne Cody's Comedy Club, <laughs> I, I was uh, making twenty five hundred a week or three thousand a week as an opener. Ooh, that's nice. No, it was that's pretty good money. Eighty yeah. eighty three. That was to me the the that was the most money I'd ever made. Yeah, you'd even be like eight nine grand today. <laughs> yeah, it would. Don't you? Don't you I, I think, think so? Yeah. I think it would yeah. be easily. Uh... So, so you, so you reluctantly come in and you take this meeting with Bob Jones, the program director, who had been trying to get some kind of new local show on the air. He wanted it to be comedic. They'd tried a couple of times with various pilots, and it just hadn't worked. And so now here you come, not even really knowing what Jones has on his agenda or what kind of show he wants. Right. I didn't. Uh, and he asked me a, a pretty pointed question. Have you, have you done a lot of TV in, in, in your path? Would you know what to do? And I lied through my teeth. I said, yes, I, I have. And I had an advertising agency, so I was very familiar with television. I had a television set, and, and I uh, 
could make ads, 30 second ads, but no, 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 I didn't know anything about TV. But, I was but prior to, to, to all of that, did you do public speaking? Uh, were you, uh, I know you were an ad director, I think uh, the Squire shop, right? Yeah. Uh, among yeah. other accounts. In fact, and, uh, you, and you owned a stereo and pet store. Yes. I, yes. I, and, yeah. and so you, you've been involved in business and at least on the periphery of doing TV work. So you weren't really lying through all of your no, teeth. No, not too bad. I, I, and as far as public speaking, yes. I, I, well, I played the, the accordion at seven years old, so I, ha I had some performing chops. Now, did you just play the accordion in order to get chicks? <laughs> of course. That and, uh, you know, it's a great campfire instrument. Uh, you could have, uh, you know, could been the next Stan Borson. Uh, maybe that's what you had in mind. There was a, my dad, my dad loved this uh, guy named Dick Contino. And Dick played uh, Lady of Spain. That's kind of the standard uh, accordion song. Accordion song, so, yeah. so I would go and I was like seven, seven year, eight years old, getting on a bus in Portland, Oregon, going 10 miles to an accordion lesson. So I could play Lady of Spain for my dad's friends. Is that where you grew up, Portland? Yeah, I was born in McMinnville, Oregon, and then we moved to Portland, we moved to Salem, and then we moved to Federal Way after that, when I was in the seventh grade. So you've got, now you've, at some point, you started working comedy clubs, you won comedy competitions, and mm -hmm. next thing you know, you're opening act for uh, Eddie Rabbit and Diane Warwick and people like that. And now this guy has got you in his program director's office, and he's he's telling you about this show he wants to do. And you, even though you said you weren't interested, uh, you were lying uh, or exaggerating your <laughs> exactly. TV experience. Yes, so was. there must have been a part of you that kind of, eh, maybe we'll see what this is. No, no. Uh, I had to be talked into it by my business manager, John Powell. Uh, it didn't seem, it's a, it did not seem like it was something, number one, that I could do or that I would be interested in doing because I, I was really, I had a family and you know, I had two small kids and married and and I thought, ah, this is, this where he said, we're looking for a, um, a 13 week commitment. And I didn't know what that meant. Uh, 13 episodes and we'll pay you $500 a week. What? Yep. And now I, why did, why did John Powell insist that this would be a good career move? He said, because he had uh, managed. Cause, Cause he'd actually be taking a cut in his feet. Yes, he uh, would. Yes, he would. Yeah. But he thought there was, there was a long-term uh, goal here to get on television he said opens all other doors i couldn't see it but he was absolutely right uh and he had managed uh, uh, mike noon uh who was a comedian mm -hmm. from seattle he lay in his deathbed dying in the late afternoon sun like vultures they gathered round him he looked at them one by one he smiled when he saw their faces so falsely sad he said kids I'll be leaving you soon. You'll be losing your old dad. They cried, oh, no, this can't be so. But he pushed those thoughts away. Then he said, kids, about my money, I've got a funny thing to say. I blew it. I spent it all. I went out. I had a ball. You thought I was up here pining away. Well, I skipped town. One fine day I took off all around the world and i gambled and drank found some girls and i'm here to say i had a ball i took that money and i blew it all 
Walt Wagner, a piano player, and they they'd all gotten uh, television shots. Uh, Pete Barbuti was his, probably his biggest uh, act at the time. Who loved him, Carson yeah. show uh, many many times. I guess one of the greatest eras that ever existed in all the entertainment business, and that era I speak of, was the era of the big bands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be because those were the days when there was a degree of legitimacy in this business. Those are the days we went to a dance hall to dance. Yeah. Those, those are the days we went to a bowling alley to bowl. Those are the days we went to a ballroom to have some fun. So we'd like to go back to that era. And he had a lot of connections in Hollywood. John Powell. And he, was, he insisted that I at least give it a shot. And I, I did. I, I actually, I just trusted John. And he said, just you'll use your jokes on TV and see if it works. If it doesn't work, you can go back on the road. Now, so, when, Bo when Bob Jones explained this idea to you, did, did you have, did he have a concrete idea of that it would be a talk show with sketches in it or no, is that, it, that come from you? No, it, he did not have an idea. And the only thing I knew was watching the, the Carson show, that's night show and trying to replicate something like that monologue, interview a guest, mm -hmm. uh, maybe do some sketches, and then before you know it, the show's over because it was only 20, it was probably 26 minutes at that time. Uh, it so was we, not a, it was not, it didn't start as an hour? No, no, oh, we took I, over. Oh, I forgot that. You probably uh, will remember this. And the only reason I ever got on television was because Al Wallace died. There was a- Al a Wallace show. was a legendary kid show host on King TV. <laughs> yes. Uh, and what was I the name of the show? Name? It was a uh, uh, how come how, how come? come yeah with with yeah that's right and so uh, he died leaving the six uh, six p.m. Sunday night slot open and it was the much coveted <laughs> yeah. yeah right we were opposite against uh, we were opposite uh, Como's uh, Ken Shram uh, Ken Shram's uh, town meeting issues, yeah. issues and arguments and so I'd like to invite Olympic college administrators to research the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution write a ten-page paper on it and then come on down yeah so um uh, that was it we he said well can you do a pilot that was what he says can you do a pilot can you write a pilot and i said i said absolutely i can write a pilot can you can you get it on the air in 30 days absolutely i had hmm. no idea pat how to do any of that i just called some friends and said, now i have this opportunity how do we do that and found people who were more far more savvy than i was which was anybody and they said well here's what you need John said, here's what you need. You need to have a entertainer. You need to have a guest. You need to have a, uh, some jokes. And yeah, that's kind of how it launched. We took over the Today Show set, the Seattle Today Show set. Uh, they called it Take Five and uh, shot a pilot. And it, was it was, wasn't very good. But they didn't have anything else to put in that time slot, so we got the gig. Hmm. Now, you say uh, we. Uh, who worked with you primarily to, well, to I, conceive uh, this show? Yeah, it was uh, Jim Sharp, who was a former junior high school history teacher, and he and I played six foot and under basketball together. He and I had this uh, uh, advertising agency together, and he was just a funny guy. I, I really enjoyed him. I thought he was just, uh, we had a good simpatico with our sense of humor. And you so know, it's kind of interesting that how many, uh, well, more than one, uh, Tom Juvik was a writer on the show, Ed also Wyatt, a teacher. <laughs> also a teacher at Bellarmine Prep, so you, you, at least you were getting some smart people in there, if, even if they didn't have TV experience. They were very, they were smart, they were witty, uh, they were fun to be around, and that was important uh, in those days, is that you'd want to hang out with, it sounded like it was going to be a lot of work, 
then you want to hang out with people you like. So, uh, so Jim worked, he, he essentially functioned as the producer yeah. of the show. And the pilot, as you say, wasn't very good. Did they ever air the pilot? They, they did. Uh, and I, and I don't think it, I don't think it got very good ratings either. Uh, we were also assigned, um, Dana Dwinnell, I think, uh, was our initial, I think she was initially just to help us get through it. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had very little direction. We had, uh, I think Walt Wagner was the guest. anybody else because the first uh, first episode that we ever did of almost live was jim palmer the underwear model baseball player yeah 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 uh, but baltimore orioles yeah the orioles guy yeah handsome handsome guy who turned out to be very charming i wear a jockey brand underwear for comfort and style did he come out in his underwear or was he uh, more fully dressed no you know, we asked him if he could do that and he said no no can we sit on the couch yeah sit on the couch in your underwear no <laughs> No, we're not going to. We're not gonna How about you. at least boxers? Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> no, that's not. I'm not known for my boxer look. So, so when you started the show and it eventually became an hour long, uh, Sundays at six, uh, you, you probably used up your monologue jokes pretty quickly. So, how, <laughs> what happened after that? I mean, how did you sustain a show every week? Tonight on Almost Live with Ross Schaefer. Comedian Jerry Swallow, Seattle's Mr. Hollywood, Stu Goldman, and a visit with Bill Nye, the science guy, all tonight, almost live. And now, here is Ross Schaefer. The following is an encore presentation of Almost Live. Well, I had to write more. I had to learn how to write more jokes. In fact, in fact there was a joke that uh, you yourself point, pointed out that uh, was uh, one that I, I it always worked, but I seem to use it everywhere forever. I think I'm probably celebrating the 35th anniversary of that joke. <laughs> what what is the joke? The joke was uh, uh, when I I said I grew up in the Pacific Northwest um, around. Uh, um, logging camps and so so we looked at movies and show business much differently like when that texas chainsaw massacre movie came out we in the pacific northwest would watch that and say can you believe they're using a mcculloch 210 <laughs> <laughs> and it was such a staple i think one of our first christmas parties uh you, you said something about uh uh you know we need some fresh humor i've got a joke and now you told that joke yeah yeah well but it had been uh it was pretty tired uh, so when so you start this show and it's it's you're doing 13 weeks, mm -hmm. and are you able to do other work or is this pretty all consuming at the time? No, it was not very consuming at all. Uh, it, I continued to to go out and do stand up at uh, weekend clubs where I could. Uh, when we were not taping, I could go to uh, Las Vegas or Reno or Atlantic City and do my week long jobs. Mm -hmm. That didn't really. Um, uh, generate any money, but here's kind of a cute story uh, that the, the when when Almost Live came out, I went to uh, the Safeway store and I looked in the TV guide 
and there was my picture and a listing. And I was like the, it was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. Yeah. We had a TV guide around uh, our house growing up and, uh, Oh, we did too. Yeah. It was a big deal. And so I'm standing in line looking at, I'm taking too much time, obviously in line. And this guy behind me is dark haired guy behind me, uh, says, uh, I, looks pretty good in there. Don't you think? I turn around and I say, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm sorry. I just, I just started a TV show and, and, and my name is in the TV guide. And he said, yeah, mine too. I said, what? <laughs> and he says, yeah, it's, oh, but I don't go, by, I don't go by Chris Wiedis. I, I go by JP batches. Oh my gosh. Really? Standing right behind me in the in line at the Safeway. I'm going to sit down here and find out who is having a birthday today. So stand by. I have a Chris Wiedis story too. I had started a radio show on King Radio, and it's a talk show. And I was terrified from the beginning because I thought, what am I going to talk about? What if I just have a brain freeze and it's just dead air for 10 minutes while I'm trying to think of something? Uh, and so, uh, but I, you know, I made my way through it. And so from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., there would be, there would be news and other discussion. But then from 9 to 10 a.m. would be a standard talk show. Like, let's go to line three. Hello. What do you want to talk about? Mm -hmm. So in the middle of this talk show, and, uh, and it was pretty early on in my time there, uh, a woman that worked on, uh, was, you know, I had a sidekick woman and she suddenly starts thrashing around, <laughs> falls out of her chair onto the floor. And it turns out she was having a grand mal seizure. Oh. It was right in the middle of, of the talk show. I'd never seen anything like that before. I was kind of, I'm kind of a rube and I, so I quickly throw to a, a break and I'm just freaking out. And people are trying to, you know, put her on her side and doing all the wrong things. Like, I think it was me that stuck a CD jewel box in her mouth to keep her from biting her tongue. And then, wow. so that thing cracked and that made it even worse. Uh, but uh, so then the, the, the ambulance comes and uh, off she goes and we're just doing an extra long break. And, and I'm just, I, I'm freaked out. I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm scared enough doing this talk show. And then this happens. So then she leaves and it's time, Pat, it's time to go back on the air. Here we go. I go, uh, uh, okay. And I don't even remember what the topic was. And I said, okay, uh, we're back. Um, let's uh, let's uh, go to uh, Chris on line three. Chris, you're on King Radio. And he and it and it was the reassuring voice of Chris Wiedis, who made <laughs> patches, just happened to be calling in. Uh, not uh, for any other reason than he was just wanting to weigh in on the topic. But that immediately put me at ease. And I thought, oh, everything's okay. This is going to be just fine. Yeah, he, he was that kind of guy. And if you grew up with him, and, and a lot of Seattle people did, yeah. um, he, he was, his show was, I, John Keister used to describe it as there was the Stan Borson kids show there were other kids shows and those are the ones your parents wanted you to watch but kids wanted to watch the jp show because he was kind of an insurrectionist he was kind of a troublemaker yes. just like kids and he'd be telling kids to do stuff that, that maybe he shouldn't have been but that's why everybody loved him so much because he was a big kid himself 
I, I thought he was a monster talent, Pat. I, yeah, honestly, he was. I think I appreciate him more now than than probably when I was watching it. For him not only be able to be able to capture that lens for as for as long as he did, because it was in the morning and the afternoon, that uh, uh, and that he he uh, his content uh, had a lot of double entendre in it. A so lot that, of it, yeah. That uh, adults would figure it out, they would enjoy it, it's, uh, and so would kids. Almost as if uh, the Simpsons stole that idea from him, uh, as did Soupy Sales, who I'm sure he, people may not know who Soupy Sales is, but on the East Coast, he was, uh, then he became a national star. Uh, well, you know, the Krusty uh, uh, the Clown character in uh, The Simpsons was, was directly, or at least indirectly, uh, based on J.P. Patches, because wow. Matt Gruning grew up in this area. and oh, uh, sure. It influenced him. And I think you could draw a direct line almost from the J.P. Patches show to Almost Live because J.P. did a lot of local humor as well. He did mm -hmm. neighbor, neighborhood jokes, and uh, that, that was influential to a lot of people who wound up working on Almost Live. Catch a can, the animal man, we got rid of him. A good old ICU 2TV said his word. Well, Ketchikan the Animal Man, uh, people in Seattle would know about Ketchikan Alaska, but I doubt elsewhere they would, they would probably not have that kind of... I have. Hey, you know, I have another question. How often did you repeat that Grand Mall bit? Oh, I, I use it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be a nice name for us, for a, for a big shopping center, wouldn't it? Grand Mall. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So who came up with the idea? Who came up with the name Almost Live? Do you remember that? Well, yeah, I do remember that. And and I I say I automatically say it's interesting, but I what's interesting about it is that when we knew we had to name the show, there were five of us involved in trying to come up with the name. We probably had a hundred and fifty names. And uh, <laughs> I think my suggestion my suggestion was five play. Oh, I did, I didn't no, we didn't use that. No, didn't, I didn't use that, no. But Jim Sharp, uh, who was who was always uh, the sound a man of reason said, you know, we're trying too hard. I think it'll just come to us. We'll all agree when it feels right, it sounds right. And uh, oh, yeah, that, that's probably a good idea. And did the name think, that he- did, did you think it would, you'd want it to be a name with some Northwest uh, connection in it? Didn't think about it. I think, it, I think we wanted it to be uh, subversively funny. I mm -hmm. think there had, I think that this, the name had to have some kind of where you'd hear it and, and smile maybe so the next the next uh, uh line out of jim sharp's mouth after he kind of lectured us in a kind way to relax and he said oh what do you think about almost live and we immediately all of us thought you know that's funny it's uh it's subtle and it's true we're gonna so we're gonna tape it a few a days self-deprecating as well it's yeah it's, yeah it had all right. of those elements that uh yeah Maybe he set us up. Maybe this, he suggested uh, that we we be open to just relaxing, and we did. But it, but it fit. It was a it was a really easy fit for us. It's such a great name. Yeah. Now, in hindsight, for sure. Well, and and also in hindsight, the one the the stupidity of it was that we did not copyright that name, and then when uh, I think it was Comedy Central then made Almost Live National, they had to pay a, a comedian in Arizona who stole the name. And I think they paid thirty six or seven thousand dollars for that for the what get the what? name back. I didn't know that story. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jeff Valdez uh, was sneaky, and he took that name and started to show in Phoenix or Scottsdale with that name. A very substandard show compared to what we did. 
Jeff Valdez, huh? Yeah. He, he had he, an oil tanker named after him, too, that they had to pay $100,000 for the rights to that. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. He pulled a stunt with it. And there's this guy in town, Jeff Valdez. He runs CTV. He was a comic. Like, I just didn't like him. You know, um, you, ever since I've known you and, and your career before comedy was that you uh, you were an entrepreneur. You, you started, as I mentioned at the get-go, this uh, idea of having a stereo and a pet store in in the same store mm -hmm. and you were you worked in the ad business always entrepreneurial so i'm sure that when you began working on almost live you started thinking how can i how can i make this how can i gin this up so that people are going to pay attention to it because the show really never got any promotional support to speak of no, uh, it was, you know, everything was about the TV news and, and, and the other programming on King. And so you came up with a crazy idea. And, and I'd like to know the genesis of the idea of trying to promote a state song. <laughs> right. Well, it was it was purely to generate some publicity. We were looking for a publicity stunt uh, yeah. because you're right. We, did, we were uh, stepchildren at King TV. We didn't have an office. As you know, we had a desk. Didn't even have your own set for a long time. No, that was, that was all part of uh, the, I don't know, a few things that were rolled in from the uh, Seattle Today Show. But uh, we thought, how can we put ourselves on the map? What, what, what could we do? And we tried a lot of different things that, uh, that, that we thought would be, I don't know, get the, the attention doing goofy things on the air, uh, making fun of people would criticize our show. I remember Andy Beck, the Tacoma uh, News Tribune hated the show and yeah. so we came up with an andometer that would show if this is this a joke that Andy liked and 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 it was <laughs> good and there would be uh, no oh she didn't like that one oh yeah. the, uh, Ross's hair is too big and there was a lot of stuff that, that that didn't work it didn't catch on and I uh, took credit for it wasn't my idea the, the this is again Jim Sharp so what if we or maybe I did say what if we change the state song we're fine we have a bird we have this is there anything we could change that might be political and uh, it was jim that said well how about louis louis and because all of us kind of grew up in that era i was in a junior high school rock and roll band where we played that song yeah ah, let's see what happens now there was an existing state song that is so banal Yes. Nobody knows it. But uh, Hel yeah, Helen Davis, who was 78, I think, at the time, wrote, wrote uh, Washington, My Home. Yeah. And it was, you're right, it was, it was horrible. It was Washington, My Home, wherever you may roam, in the fields of wheat, in the mountains. It was just, no one knew the song. It was the song of the state by default, because nobody yes. has written yeah. anything better. Right. Washington, my So we decided, to do, and she got very upset when she thought somebody would dethrone her song. Of course. She, she uh, went into the, the uh, Spokane uh, newspaper. I can't think of the Spokane paper. It doesn't matter, I guess, but it's their local, the Seattle. Or, spokesman, uh, spokesman, maybe? Spokesman, yeah, the Seattle, yeah, the spokesman, Spokane yeah. spokesman. Right. 
And she said, uh, if that Ross Schaefer wants to change the state song to Louie Louie, he might as well change the state flower to marijuana. Duh. Hey, thank you for the idea. One talk over the line, sweet Jesus, one talk over the line. Sitting downtown in a railway station, one talk over the line. <laughs> I went on TV the next week and said, uh, great suggestion, but we're so swamped with the song right now, we can't get to that. <laughs> we'll get to it next, uh, yeah, next season. Next time. Yeah. And you know what, what, uh, be, because almost live was making or poking fun at Ballard and Kent and Renton. Well, this was kind of a perfect idea that we could tackle a political, um, idea that anybody could do. You can participate if you, if you like the state song and we came up with this, we had a small budget of a couple hundred dollars. So we bought buttons and we went on the streets and handed out the Louie Louie buttons and let people participate. So we did a lot of field pieces that helped make it go viral. It was just goofy enough that yeah, uh, we got it just, it, before viral was a thing. It right, went viral. Right. Yeah. I think what, uh, what it might've done with social media today, it would have been one thing just to mention this Louis Louis idea uh -huh. on the show, but you, you pushed it way out there and you actually went down yeah. to Olympia and, and to the state Capitol. Yeah. building and uh, and you testified or spoke or however you want to put it uh, you were trying to get this to be an officially uh, voted upon bill of some kind that's that right change the name to louis louis i did i spoke to this the the congress people how did that get arranged uh you know that's a i don't i think it was jim uh gosh, jim mckenna McKenna, yeah, McKenna, I think maybe. McKenna knew somebody. Jim, Jim McKenna seemed to know everybody in any any place, so yeah. he might have set that up. And we just wanted—I just wanted a few minutes to have, to present the idea. And because we had footage of it and photographs of it, it looked like, oh my God, these guys are really serious. So we talked about it every week and how it was going, and then we made uh, uh, this pitch that we were going to have Louis Louis Day and we were going to storm the Capitol. And that, we, we couldn't have predicted how that would turn out. More than 5,000 supporters rallied on the steps of the state capitol, and World News Tonight was there. Esquire Magazine awarded them with the coveted Dubious Achievement Award, and Ross appeared with Dick Clark and Ed McMahon on NBC. There were between five and 8,000 people that showed up. Uh, oh, my gosh. Wow. Through this rally, and the... The Whalers, the band from that yeah. time was yeah yeah. Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders from Idaho came over, and they were on. It, it was a big national news item, and um, this I will take credit for. Um, I chanted this. I had a big Louis Louis sweatshirt, and I put my finger right hand in the shape of an L, which now we know is loser, but at the time uh, it meant Louis Louis. And the, you can see the pictures of the crowd all raising their L's <laughs> uh, to do this. And it, we, we got Booth Gardner, who was the governor at the time, to get out of his office and come out and address this crowd. And one of the most gratifying things that I've ever had happen in my career was when he stood behind, uh, you know, behind a microphone to this vast audience and said, I vow to get even with Ross Schaefer. And it was, a, it was like he had just endorsed us. <laughs> What a great, what a great promotion, great idea, and and I'm, I was always impressed with the way you took it and ran with it. It had a life of its own, Pat. You know that was that was truly the impetus for us to go from 30 minutes to 60 minutes as a TV show because advertisers loved it. Uh, we all the beer ads were sold out. Uh, yeah, it was a 
it, it was just propelled on its own. Do you remember a moment uh, when you were doing the show where you it just suddenly struck you, hey, this is a thing. This is cool. Uh, I'm starting to really get the hang of this thing now. And, uh, and I'm really glad John Powell talked me into this. I, I did. It was, um, uh, I think it was the, the, there were two things that happened. There were Louie Louie, but I was also getting attention from Hollywood. I had an, um, an agent at William Morris, which at the time was kind of a big agency. Yeah. And they were getting more and more requests. I said, How, where, what do you mean? Where, where are these coming from? Oh, it's people that, that saw you about Louie Louie, or they saw, saw you uh, on a talk show with your jokes. And, and it was clear to me that, that the television exposure was propelling my own personal career. I got a, because of Almost Live, I, I did 130 episodes of a game show called Love Me, Love Me Not. Welcome to the game of love, the game that makes the world go round. Love Me, Love Me Not. Now, meet the star of Love Me, Love Me Not, your host, Ross Schaefer. To Love Me, Love Me Not. Thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Now, first of all, I want to tell you, this is not just a regular game show. We want to give you information about men and women that you don't normally get. Now, probably you don't know that the sport enjoyed the most by men and women is golf. That's true, and I, I kind of agree with that. Golf takes a lot of cunning and strategy and wits, because that little pencil I give you doesn't have an eraser. It failed. It was an MGM production, but it was a real big deal. Were you and doing that concurrently? Yeah, I was doing that in the summer break, during the summer uh, break. Oh. Jim Sharp and I went to uh, uh, Vancouver and shot it at... Uh, at the BBC um, studios there. And while the show wasn't, wasn't very good, it was so much practice in such a short amount of time. We did 130 episodes in about 20 days, it seemed. And I just came back with a lot of confidence. And, it, and we had a new set, uh, more money was being thrown at the show. We could bring in people, that, the, the guest lineup got better. And that's when, that's when it felt like, oh, this is, this is something because comedians like Jerry Seinfeld were, we're yeah. wanting to come on the television show. Doesn't it make you nervous that people want to be president? Just the idea right there. You have a guy walking down the street thinking, I should be the most powerful man in the world. I feel I'm my first choice. <laughs> you know, when I was in high school, I was in charge of the yearbook. I mean, this is the kind of guy that's... Ellen DeGeneres. So. Ellis, Ellen DeGeneres. This is great. Are you, is everybody keeping in shape and staying healthy here? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's important. You know, my grandmother started walking five miles a day when she was 60. She's 97 today, and we don't know where the hell she is. <laughs> People, they had heard about it from their other comic friends. When you go to Seattle, you got to do the show. So it was, uh, it was, I guess, during that time. And then also, I thought, we got to get out of Seattle. We have to go to Spokane. We have to go to Portland. Yeah. But the Bullet Sisters owned these other satellite stations why don't we syndicate that mini syndicate this show it, it and, and you know we all felt this was this good and we were getting yeah. emmy awards and and iris awards for our recognition from the tv anyway they wouldn't do it and it was very frustrating did they we, ever explain why they wouldn't do it? i mean they, they had a station in boise too for them oh they did have a station in boise yeah, yeah. uh oh. they didn't believe that it could that a seattle show would be interesting to these outlying markets I call them outline. They're they're independent and successful on their own. But 
But and you could have said, well, you know, if we, if we become syndicated, we'll weave in more, you know, Portland-centric jokes and Spokane yes. and all of that. It, right. It'll be a, it can be a slightly different show than it is now, more it, it, inclusive of all of those people. That You're absolutely I wish you had been the program director who could see that. But, you know, the other thing about that almost live show was that we didn't do all local material. The guests we had, like yeah, Larry yeah. King or Jerry Seinfeld, they play anywhere. And we had uh, bits, uh, uh, John uh, Keister's bit, uh, that which I, I really put him on the map as far as I'm concerned, was was a bit called Guardian Anglers. Oh, yeah. And they would be out fishing for crime. Or they would be, it was that, that idea. And I remember a similar bit called Mime Hunters when John was with Joe Guppy and Ed Wyatt. Got him! Tag him and bag him. Come on, go. Mimes come with pierced ears for easy tagging. Uh, we had one called the Yuppieing with Todd, which is just about the yuppie movement at the time. I remember those, that. Those play anywhere. It wasn't like uh, we were so local, as as we found out later when Comedy Central put it on. One of the things that you uh, you did uh, that that had legs, um, maybe two or three different incarnations, was called Ballard Vice. <laughs> this was uh, at the time when Miami Vice was not only. A popular show but it was a kind of a trend-setting show used the, with the use of of music and uh, just the way it was shot it was really hot and so the idea was that it would be a similar sort of uh, cops but they're working in a relatively less glamorous place than Miami in this case Ballard but these cops mm -hmm. still took themselves very seriously they, they <laughs> there was no crime we never found any crime because there wasn't, it was sort of sleepy. We'd go to Ballard and look for crime. And uh, the, you know, the biggest crimes in Ballard were leaving your blinker on too long. Yeah, pretty big deal. But, uh, but they did. But John and I played those two characters and we wore the costumes, the pastel suits. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, all that of the time. And I had a sports car. I had a Porsche at one point and then I had a Ferrari at one point. And that just, uh, and we, <laughs> with a Ferrari, we'd, there, we might see a crime, but we could never get out of the car. Yeah. It was it was too hard to get in and out of the car. <laughs> I love it. Uh, and and that a show uh, that bit uh, attracted uh, the interest of other celebrity types around town, including some Seahawks that you right. Seattle Seahawks at the time that right. you then said, "Hey, you want to be on? You want to be in this thing?" And, and they readily agreed. And and I could just re I think uh, Jim Zorn, the uh, yes quarterback yeah, at the Jim, time, and Michael Jackson. Right. Uh, yeah, that's right. The linebacker Michael Jackson. They wanted to be a part of it. It was a, it was a guest cameo that they thought was cool, and we made it cool. The way we edited the show, yeah. the show uh, made it look like they were they could be dangerous. And you know what, Pat? The, what has struck me most about that that uh, recurring bit today? You could never get away no. with plastic guns running around town. No, I was thinking about that too. Post 9-11, the idea that we would routinely run around town and around the, uh, the hallways of King Television, which is a button-down, uh, well-managed professional business. And yet there, you got these like 12-year-olds, uh, seemingly 12-year-old people yes. running around with little plastic guns and yelling and jumping down stairways and all this stuff and and it was tolerated it, it, it everybody was okay with it do you know that was one of the bonuses of having that show get some attraction or traction i should say but it was also an attraction 
that uh, John and I became recognized uh, so much in that town that if we were out shooting something, people just, they wanted to watch. They wanted to see. Nobody questioned us. They assumed that we had permits. They assumed that we had asked permission somehow to do that. And, and that, of course, never happened. No. When uh, Brian Bosworth came to town. Well, the best kept secret in, in the Northwest, we would like to introduce you to our number one pick in the supplemental, Brian Bosworth. He's a big personality. He he uh, he had that uh, love hate relation, mostly hate. I don't think people really liked him, but he played into that. And so I went to downtown Nordstrom, bare chested, with blue forty four painted on my chest and back. And I walked in with a camera, and I said, well, "I'm I'm really looking for the Bosworth department. Work, point me to the Bosworth." And people was, uh, uh, well, I think it's I think it's on the second floor. So we have cameras. We're going all up and down. <laughs> that store yeah, well they didn't have any first. securities no staff no. standing around in stores in those days no, not at all that, not at all we we literally owned the town at that time and because it was a popular comedy show they just assumed that nobody would get hurt uh, it would be maybe they'd see themselves on camera at the next almost live or whatever it was uh, we were just given license to be foolish and by golly we did it <laughs> we did. <laughs> I wasn't not as involved with the show uh, in the in the early days of it, uh, but you well, you'd let me come on once in a while. I can remember one live bit we did, and and I just this one sticks out to me because uh, we just had a premise, but no script, and the premise was that I was uh, come out like uh, you know I'm a mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom guy. And I come out in the pith helmet and all of the jungle outfit. And I've got a cage with me. And, uh, and uh, you interview me as if I'm a real person. And uh, the, I think the, the punchline of it was that I reach into this cage and uh, there's a kitten in there. Or some, I, I don't remember what that's right. Yeah. But I remember we had no, we didn't know how we were going to end the bit. We really didn't know. How, we just had the loosest idea of where we're going to go. And uh, man, it, well, you know what? it looks yes. too, if you ever get to see the bit. Well, you know, you and I are a fan of uh, the comedy team of Bob and Ray. Oh yeah. I am the president and recording secretary. Secretary of of the S T O A. What does that stand the for? Slow talkers of America. And and you and I look like we had credibility, whether there was a way we comported ourselves or our deeper voices or whatever it was. It sounded like we could speak with authority, uh, even though it was nonsense. And so you sold it as if this was going to be important. Uh, your work is important. And so then the punchline would always be something kind of absurd. But I would, t I would tell anybody who's listening to this that, that uh, those of us who were pretty new to this whole idea of television were pretty intimidated by Mr. Pat Cashman. Because Pat had made... Uh, it's because of these uh, biceps, isn't it? <laughs> well, it was... Uh, yeah. We didn't see the biceps. I used to really. wear the really tight T-shirts around the station just to scare people oh. off. 
the, the and the wife beaters yeah uh, yeah when you brought those to lunch the uh but what it was is you'd been you'd, you already had established yourself as a funny um promo guy and you were you were the arbiter so at, we would be we were too intimidated even to ask you to be a part of it because you're obviously you had a job you were busy creating promos for every show on on king television and i remember the condition was that i don't know if you remember this the condition was okay well i'll write something but i don't want anybody to look at it i don't want to i don't want anybody to critique it if you don't like it don't air it if you do like it air it but i just prefer to work alone and i and we thought yeah yeah okay let's let you whatever he wants to do we'll do i did i really say that uh maybe you didn't you didn't say it we thought it yeah i mean uh, that, that, that would be true to me i uh, as as kind of a that uh, wasn't not arrogant. confident enough to say hey everybody look at this what do you think i just like to slip it under the door and then yeah people like well, it, we'll see what happens you knew all the tricks you knew how to edit you knew how to add music you knew how to add drama to a story all those things that we had no at that time we had no idea how to do any of that and so we just implicitly trusted you and and then would uh, hint Pat, if you have any other ideas, you know, just we'd really like you to come up. We'll put them in wherever. And, wherever. and so you delivered gold. Sluggy, uh, a, a little boy that had a slug as a pet, uh, set kind of a standard for us that, that we had to aspire to. From Gastropod Pictures. <laughs> And it was based on the the little kid in Christmas Story, the the movie Christmas yeah, Story. I, I wanted the I loved the look of that kid in in the movie yeah. Christmas Story. And so I you found a guy just like I that. I found a little kid, a kid actor. Get my gun, boy! No! <laughs> and uh, but I what I also remember about that is that that his he was his because the kid's like eight years old or something. So his mm -hmm. mother obviously drove him down to the station and then she wanted to accompany us on this shoot which was going to be you know all around town and and i and i thought man you know what i'm planning to do with this kid is i'm going to push him off a little embankment and he's and he's going to get uh, slime all over his face and we're going to put him through some physical uh some minor danger at least minor uh, and i don't want i don't want his his mom coming along you know putting the kibosh on some of this stuff and so we made up some lame excuse like you know what our van is so full of equipment we don't have any room to bring anybody else and she said well why, why don't i just follow you in my car no i don't think that's a good idea uh somehow this mother protective of her son agreed that okay i guess i won't go along and sees her little boy drive off with these big galoots uh and we did put that little kid through a lot but i think uh, i heard that the parents were a little shocked when they saw the piece later and they said well that explains the dirt and the grass stains timmy uh, <laughs> <laughs> right but they i think because tv was so mysterious uh she probably well okay if that's how you if that's how you make television whatever you I think yeah all right yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. Hey, um, the other one character that I love that you did, uh, I think we we did have to talk you into doing it, and then you you went so over the top, and it was about the, uh, it was uh, Uncle Al, the kitty's pal, or was it something, 
Um, it was it was called Uncle Buzz, and it was your Uncle Buzz. Your idea. Yes. Look, let's get right to it, shall we? Let's take our first phone call. Hi, you're on the air with Uncle Buzz. Hi, Uncle Buzz. I'm a big fan. Oh, yeah? And that... a long-time listener. I've only been on for about 30 seconds. Well, I, I've been listening since then. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can, can you remember where you were during the big Seattle earthquake? Look, I can't remember that at all. Not a bit uh, of it. No way. Well, wh where were you when Mount St. Helens erupted? Like I said, I'm not good at remembering stuff. What about but... when you first heard they were going to sell Coors in Washington State? I was with a friend. I was in his apartment at Fremont. I'll never forget that. But I, but I had already, uh, but there was nobody that we could think of that would be better than you. And then you took it to a whole, it was where you'd sit down in front of a camera, like a kid's show host, putting motor oil in your hair. And it was, and I don't know how, it, it, but it just fit that that would be the guy who would get a kid's show. Yeah. And you were, you were kind of uh, irascible yeah. as a kid's show host. Yeah, I, I was unshaven. I was a, a <laughs> degenerate reprobate. And I'm smoking and drinking, and then I'm, Deigning to give advice to kids. That, that's what yeah. it was. That was really fun. Uh, and that was your idea, man. That, that was fun for me well, to, get to do that. It was so fun. But, but the motor oil was nobody's idea. That, was, that had to come from you. And I wasn't and smart enough to use fake motor oil, you know? <laughs> no, it was real. It took days to get it out of my hair. And I could have used like a, a golden colored shampoo or something that would have looked like motor oil. But no, I wasn't smart enough to do that. <laughs> hey, I want to talk to you about uh, John Keister. Uh, and when and how he came to the show, uh, and that and and somebody told me that initially, you weren't that big a fan of him. Not at all. Not at all a fan of John's. I I didn't understand why. If this was our show, we were assigned this guy who was on the uh, uh, Rev. Uh, was it Rock Entertainment Video? Was that the? Yeah, the that was when Rock uh, and uh, Entertainment Music Videos were a new thing, and so okay. it was a local show featuring local bands and john had a segment in that show called um the rocket report because he worked oh the rocket report yes yes because he worked for rocket magazine yeah, yeah exactly yeah. let me look back and sum it up for you a lot of old heavyweight club bands are breaking up and the new groups trying to take their place are having a hard time drawing people away from this crop of video bars and dance clubs that only play recorded music and have people waiting in lines for hours to dance into the glow of television screens on sweaty dance floors. Happy 1984, and remember, the Rocket Report is watching. Okay, so uh, we just were kind of blindsided. Jim Sharp and I were blindsided. We said, oh, hey, there's a, there's a guy that, uh, who's going to be on your show. We said, oh, is the comedian we know? No, no, he's, he does music, and he's a, but he's, a, he's a kind of an entertaining guy. And we met him, and he didn't like us either. But we were stuck. And then we thought, here's what we thought, Jim Sharp and I thought, well, hey, let's just let him come up with something. Uh, maybe he'll have enough rope to hang himself. It was not, we were not very nice. And uh, so we said, oh, what, what do you have in mind, John? And he said, well, not, nothing right now. But if I come up with something, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll let you know. That was, that was uh, truthfully how, so we thought he'll never get anything on the show. He, he's not disciplined like us. We, we know that, uh, that we have to put something on television on the weekend. It can't just, it can't just be when you come up with something. We, right. We've got deadlines see. here. Uh-huh. There, there was something we had learned early on called preparation, and he didn't seem to have that. Uh, but he did come He had an idea, and he said, well, can I just go out and shoot it? Sure, sure, just go out and shoot it. And it was so good when he came back. Uh, we all ate 
a crow and thought, oh my God, we need, we need to. Do you remember what, the, do you remember what that person? I thought, I actually, I, I think I may have it confused. I thought it was the ga guardian anglers bit, but it may, may have been something else. Yeah. Uh, I think the anglers came along second, but the, the, okay. the, the recurring uh, department of his was called assignment danger. Oh yes. It was assignment danger. That's right. And so and it right. could be such simple stories like, uh, uh, he he deigned to be bold enough to walk uh, against uh, the light when it said "Don't walk." You know that that it was that kind of danger, or <laughs> yeah. or he was sitting yeah. on a, one of those dumpsters one time that that clearly says on a little sign, "Do not sit or play around," and he's right. That's and he, right. And he, so the very simple premises, but with his tongue in his cheek, calling it. Uh, dangerous uh, was wonderful, and then I, the first time I ever got to work with him was um, one he did called uh, Simon Danger in Broadmoor. Within the city of Seattle sits a walled-off community shrouded in mystery. Only the very elite can gain entrance through the heavily guarded gate. The common people of Seattle have never known what lies behind these heavily fortified walls until now. <laughs> he wanted oh yeah i remember that climbing over the wall yeah. and he gets over the wall and tell and we think it's going to be mansions and rich people and then but tell them tell well, the, it's uh, just audience. it's just rural we shot it the most of it in rural king county in in the most uh, bucolic farm uh, property that we could find and uh, they, there just happened to be sheep in the background and all this kind of stuff uh it, it is really I thought, man, this guy really has a wonderful vision. And again, you know, that's kind of, it, it was so local. And I, he, he kind of tapped into, I bet a lot of people want to know what Broadmoor looks like. This is Broadmoor? Broadmoor, yeah. What were you expecting? Well, you know, somehow I thought it was going to be a, just a lot different than this. I don't know. Well, one thing, and, and what people... Uh, might be interested to know about John was that he never had a script. No, he, he had a cocktail napkin or he had a lawn, uh, you know, a, a dry cleaning slip and he'd write his little idea on the back of the dry cleans and he would come in. And after that first bit, and he would say, well, I have this kind of uh, notion. I was thinking if I did, we just say, yes, just yes, please. <laughs> Television, as you know, has a voracious appetite to burn up material. Oh yeah. So he could come up with anything and he didn't come up with it he wasn't on every week he may be on every two weeks or maybe even three mm. weeks uh he he kind of let uh um you know uh, what we found out early was uh, you know the people will say well i'm gonna just let an idea come to me uh well we found you had to look for it so it wasn't it wasn't like it just came to you and john figured out that too he would he would be very deliberate and then when he couldn't think of things, he would bring more cast members on the show, like uh, Joe Guppy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who was very clever and also looked buttoned down, but he wasn't. He was uh, yeah. he, out of his mind. He's very absurd. He did some wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I did. Tonight, tonight on Book Look, we present a retrospective on the work of one of America's greatest contemporary poets, a master of sparse language and bizarre imagery. I refer, of course, to Dr. Seuss. <laughs> We have little biographical information on Seuss, but we do know that his early childhood must have been traumatic, particularly his relationship with his father. His seminal work, Hop on Pop. 
contains, contains the following. We like to hop, we like to hop on top of pop. So, uh, as you said, John was maybe on every couple of weeks or so, and, and might have still been on every couple of weeks or so, until you got an opportunity that uh, changed everything at Almost Live. Uh, well, I, I had been whining that we should syndicate Almost Live. And when my agent at William Morris tried to, we tried to sell it, we got interest, and the Bullet Sisters at the time said no. I, I, it sounds like I instructed my agents. No, but my agents and I had a conversation. Well, if something else comes up that, that I could host, uh, or maybe at some point go national, and I, have, I say that with air quotes, then I'd love to do it. And so they did. They, and I, I had plenty of videotape from Almost Live to show around. Right. I got more, more and more interest. And so in the, we were starting the fifth season and Joan Rivers had a TV show, a talk show yeah. that competed against Carson. Live from Fox Television Center in Hollywood, it's The Late Show starring Joan Rivers. Joan's guest tonight are David Lee Long, Wee Herman, Elton John, and Cher. And I would sit at my house and think, oh, almost live is better than her show. How does that happen? How does she get a show? Oh, she's famous. Oh, how does she get a show? But the comedy bits aren't as funny as ours. Our comedy bits had endings, which is something Saturday Night Live couldn't even pull right, off from time right. to time. And so it was very frustrating. And, you know, in the midst of that, I get a phone call saying, hey, the Fox, uh, Joan Rivers has been fired. And so we're, they're going to be interviewing other hosts to take over that time slot. I said, really? And they did. They had a new host every night, it seemed. It, were, it was almost uh, obligatory that, that anybody who had ever been in show business got a chance to try to host that show. Bob Newhart, uh, Dennis Miller, mm. Jim Carrey. It, was, it went kind of like a revolving door. Arsenio Hall uh, got on that show, and he did very well. He was, uh, they tried to, they wanted to lock him up, and he had had an offer from Paramount Pictures to say, no, let's create your own show where you can be an owner. And he left, so then the revolving door started again, and now it was my turn to go down and try out. Well, I'd been doing Almost Live for four solid years, and we were in our fifth season. I knew what to do. It was just a bigger audience. It was fun. I had seen that, that set on TV every night watching Joan. Yeah. I, had a, an, I had an interview session during the day prior to the show to see if I could interview people, and I, something that I was pretty uh, comfortable doing. So we did the show that night using jokes that I had done almost on Almost Live, um, being confident and, and casual like I, like I had been. Could you have done that four years earlier before Almost No, no, no. I would, have been, I would have been like a little kid who had been pummeled and too embarrassed. I, no, no. It took, it took uh, that 130 episodes of the game show in Canada. It took the four years of Almost Live. It took all of the stage time that I had as a stand-up comedian to have the confidence to walk in to a what seemed—I mean, it seemed pretty big time—to uh, go in and act like I owned it. Yeah. And so after that show, they they pr virtually presented me with a contract at the end of that episode, and I was now going. They wanted to hire me as the to take over that that show from. Uh, because of what they had contracted with all of their uh, affiliates, they had to produce that show. My problem was that I had a radio show on KJR at that time that was daily and almost live. So I had two contracts that I had to get out of if I was going to be able to do go to Los Angeles and produce that show. And that part was not easy. Um, morally, it was not easy. 
although I hadn't written in my contract as if something of national importance came up, I could get out. I uh, tried to do both. I tried to do Almost Live and uh, go to California. Don't tape Almost Live on the weekends, go back through Monday through Friday in California. And it, uh, Bill Stanton, who's the producer, and uh, Debbie Masana, who was uh, then the program director, said, it's just not working. We need to find another host for Almost Live. Totally understood. I felt embarrassed about that. Did you think they were, did you think they were trying to uh, hold you up and, and make you have to choose, or did, or did you take them at their word that not yet? Okay, get another host. Because I, I can't choose to stay at Almost Live when I've got a chance to do this bigger show. I, I felt that way. I never felt like it was, because they were so congratulatory. They were, uh, at the time, both of, both the, uh, the Bill Stanton and, and Debbie were saying, this is, this is going to look good for Almost Live, that, that we launched uh, a national host. I don't think we, it's practical. It's not practical for us to do both because you're here during the week writing the show, which is absolutely true. And for you just to drop in on the weekend and host it, just it seems uh, like we're not getting the best out. And I completely understood. It was harder to get out of my radio contract, basically, because that was a, I had to leap right away and they had to fill four hours every afternoon on KJR. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, uh, it, it was such a big leap um, for somebody like me that I thought I, I can't let this opportunity go. It may never come around again. The, the, the stars were aligned. I already knew how to do that job. And your, and your I, agent, John Powell, of course, was encouraging as well, right? Yeah, he was, he was, he was, uh, he, this is what he had been waiting for, uh, grooming me for, and the agents and the attorneys too, that, that this is, this was the moment where if I didn't screw it up, it could be this big, career you want to read that <laughs> what's that that message oh no like you gotta, oh, no i don't like you gotta no text. it's just you know pat you know i'm i'm so popular that yeah <laughs> oh it's abc oh i'm sorry no. uh, they want me to fill in for david muir at night i'm not, I'm not gonna no, do that no, you think i'm no. gonna drop an interview with you he's not that? funny uh so, he's not funny at all so you went and did that and uh and then uh, at least one, maybe two, Jim Sharp and Scott Schaefer went with you from Almost Live. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, and then for a short period of time, John Teaster came down, and you had <laughs> yeah. him sort of sitting in as sort of an Ed McMahon type of sidekick guy. Well, and it went yes. well. It it ki John killed. He and and what had happened at the at the network at the Fox network, you know, Russ, uh, we, we need to find a sidekick for you. And uh, we have some people lined up. Well, you know that it's not, you can't just pick somebody to be your sidekick. There has to be some chemistry. It has, you have to get each other. And there was nobody, I kept pitching John Keister is the guy he's, uh, but he was also hosting almost live at that point. So it was, I was like, I was poaching. Uh, but I had, uh, I had three or four people show up to be the co-host on that show, and it didn't work. One of them was David Spade. I look, have you ever seen yourself on the side? It's horrifying. <laughs> I go like this, who's this dude? Oh my God, is that me? Is that what the world sees every day? It's uh, who invited Gollum in here? I'm like, I go, and David, David Spade and I had dinner to get to know one another, and he complete, he was nobody, but he completely ignored me. This was, this was before his, his Saturday Night Live time? Yeah, way before Saturday Night Live, he, before any of his sitcoms. This, he was just kind of an up-and-coming uh, Dana Carvey 
look alike. Yeah. That was that was what they build him as. We have the new young Dana Carvey at Bernie Brillstein. So I have a dinner with the agent Bernie Brillstein and somebody else from that agency and David. And I was a now at that point I was on a network talk show every night, so I wasn't an unknown uh, by that point. But David David treated me just horribly. Mm. So so finally, I said, David, uh, do you do you want to be on this show? <laughs> and his words his words said it all. He kind of was leaning on his elbow across the dinner table, and he goes, "You look like my dad." <laughs> wow okay okay no so that's another way of saying no yeah i guess yeah it's another way of saying so did, no. did you, you like were that. you uh, in addition to being the host did you have uh, the authority to to go thumbs up or thumbs down on whoever this sidekick was going to be did i did but after the fact i i would they were bringing these people and i'd try to make it work and i'd say look look at the tape it didn't work did it no no well I have the guy, I have the guy and it's John Keister and he's in Seattle. Can you just bring him down and give us a night? Just, you'll see what happens. And so he comes down and on that night we have this, uh, we had uh, Shannon Tweed, who was a playmate of the year for Playboy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis Franz, who was on a, a cop show that was, uh, uh, he was he was already very established. And then this, uh, this uh, horrible talk show a host named Wally George. Oh, yeah, I remember he had, him. He had an underground kind of uh, talk show. Why do these mentally deranged people have to get through to me? You know, why aren't they in some padded cell with phones taken away from them? I hope your mother, I, I, I suppose you did have a mother or have a mother of some kind, uh, I hope she washes your stupid mouth out with lies. He and Morton Downey Jr. were battling to be who could be the the biggest asshole on TV. Uh, I didn't. I didn't mean to say. Can I say TV? Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah. Okay. I'd rather so, uh, television, but it takes longer <laughs> to say. Yeah. So, so Wally George's claim to fame is he happens to be Rebecca De Mornay's dad. Correct. Uh, and people would remember her from uh, Risky Business with Tom Cruise mm -hmm. or Hand That Rocked the Cradle. Are you ready for me, Ralph? So anyway, uh, he's he's a complete jerk. And he starts belittling my uh, guests. Why don't I want to be on? Why am I on TV with this low-life playmate? What about this hack uh, TV guy, Dennis Franz? He's not a cop, you know. He pretends to be a. And I said, you can't come on the show and insult the guests. And it gets uh, it, it. It's really uncomfortable. But it's all, it's said, it's all this fake, calculated outrage by him just because he right he wants to get attention right. Yeah. Well, it was it was working, and then he said, and you're, and "These who where'd you bust these people in from?" And it was a 500 person audience, it was a big audience. And so, so uh, uh, he says one kind of big insult, and I said, "I'm going to throw you off the show. We're going to come back from commercial, and Wally will not be here." And John Keister, who is the sidekick for that show, from the end of the couch goes. In a in an Ed McMahon uh, esque voice, yeah. and the audience falls down. It was John. It was John's perfect wit and perfect timing that no one could deny that John Keister needed to be on that show. That's and afterward, they tried to sign him, and he went back to Seattle. I want to talk to my wife. 
And he went back to Seattle and thought, you know, my wife's going to have babies. She's going to have twins. I can't go to Los Angeles. What's wrong with me? So he stayed. John stayed in Seattle and almost live as the host for another dozen years. So he was, he was, he made a good decision. Yeah. I, I do think it's one that conflicted him though, from time to time uh, through the years. Really? What if, what if, uh, should I, or shouldn't I, uh, but you know, we, everybody's great at looking in the rearview mirror, but I think it worked out pretty well for him. Uh, oh, your yeah. Fox show ultimately ended. You did some, a lot of other projects. You, I've always admired the way you constantly are enthusiastic about the new, a new venture, uh, a new avenue. And today you are, and I don't know the name of it, but it, you are in the National Speakers Hall of Fame because you've been a keynote speaker for well over 10 years, speaking all over the country, all over the world. And uh, you com you combine humor with real good solid business information superstars do this they ask questions constantly they learn they listen constantly and you know what they don't do they never talk about the economy you know what we do at our company it's extraordinary we're having the best year we have ever had in three of our companies we refuse to participate in the recession <laughs> that is our the world did not oh thank you you know what the world did not shut down did it a lot of people are making money. We just figured it might as well be us. You've done pretty well for yourself, Mr. Schaefer. Well, thank you. I, I um, started out as a young guy with a business degree who bought and sold companies uh, out of bankruptcy. I didn't have, well, it's not like I had any money, but, I, but you can get a bank. You can, anybody can buy a business at the bankruptcy court and they'll give it to you because it's already broke. You can't mess it up. Yeah. Uh, but I also didn't get into entertainment until I was past 30 years old. And most people get in or in their 20s. So I had that as, a, as my background. And then after a dozen or so years in television. And here's the star of Match Game, Ross Schaefer. Welcome to Match Game, everybody. Game shows and um, um, talk shows and various things. I, um, the phone stopped ringing because I was aging, aging out at uh, 40, 40 to maybe some, I don't something like 44 actually so anyway then um, um, I had to come up with something else and what was easy for me to do was to talk about business and I had a stand-up comedy act so that's how it, that was the confluence of those two things I also had a story and the story I think that this is if you're I've been called a motivational speaker or an inspirational I don't know what whatever I don't really care for that name because it connotes people like Tony Robbins or yeah. or people that that uh, spout platitudes and have never run a company. They've never had any real success. How do you lose respect? You can't lose something that's already inside of you. Love is not something you have to go looking for when it's where you come from. I don't like that. However, um, as, a, as a young guy who grew up in the Pacific Northwest, had some businesses, got on uh, television and then network television, it was a story that I could, that I could talk about the process and the discipline mm -hmm. of being successful at a lot of things. Yeah. And it's a story I like telling and it seems to be something that I can sell. So it's, uh, that's what, what I seem to do now until, until the COVID virus hit and, and it was illegal to gather and have meetings yeah. or hotels and, and the airline industry went down. Uh, but it uh, certainly anybody who does uh, any kind of entertainment uh, is not working. Which is, you know, what they say about that is that 
you use that the downtime to create new things. And I think that's incumbent upon people who do what I do or, or people who are in entertainment. You don't waste this time. Without being specific, I know that you're, you are using this time to, to do other things and find other ways to make money. And that's very mm -hmm. cool. Well, thanks for spending time. Before you leave, I got to hear that Eddie Rabbit story. Oh, my God. Okay. So I toured with Eddie Rabbit. And uh, for those of you who may or may not know, he died early of uh, cancer. But he had a big hit called Driving My Life Away. So I'm working with him, working with him, and we're becoming friends and um, having cheese trays at the end of the shows. And he says, man, I wish I could do what you do. I go, you can. I'll, I'll write some jokes for you. And there's a part in his act where he would say, um, he would say, uh, um, you know, people ask me, is Rabbit your real name? And no, uh, my real name is Money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Eddie Money. And, and he would, that, that, he'd just leave it there. Yeah, my, uh, that, that is my real name. Well, there's no, there's no joke there. It was just that he, he would answer the question. I spell it with two T's. And I said, you have an opportunity to turn that into a really, I think there's a funny joke there. And he goes, what do you mean? Tell people that. So yes, it's my real name. And it's, and it's, uh, it's difficult growing up with that, with rabbit as your last name. And it was particularly hard on my sister, Bunny. And so it's, it's not a great joke, but it was kind of a cute joke for banter. That's what yeah, yeah. Uh, so the way he would go, he would go on stage. He never got it right. He'd say, yeah, I, uh, rabbit's my real name spelled with two T's. And it's, um, uh, you know, it was really hard on my sister bunny rabbit. <laughs> no, you don't have to say full, her full name. <laughs> yeah, he never did get it right. Thank you again so, for this, my friend this has been, little stroll down memory fun. lane. Yeah, I wish I'd had uh, funnier stories. Those are pretty good. Do you remember <laughs> um, if you had, if you were on your deathbed right now, God forbid, uh -huh. and they uh -huh. said, Mr. Schaefer, before you go, can you uh -huh. tell us the joke that you're proudest of? Oh, boy, that's uh, <laughs> not the longest running, but the proudest of? Yeah. That's right. It, Okay, so it's so it's it would be a joke that I tell about Tony Robbins, and it's the the joke about and I and I told this joke to differentiate myself in that cavalcade of people who do motivational speakers, uh, speaker kind of work. And the idea is that uh, uh, Tony sells optimism. He he wants you to walk on fire. Tony is so optimistic. I swear if he ever went to jail, he'd tell you he lived in a gated community. That is a solid joke. It, it's, uh, it, it says everything about what I wanted to say. The Almost Live, Still Alive podcast. Produced and edited by Morris Patrick Cashman. Technical director is Dave Tavers. Special gratitude to the legendary Kenneth George Buford McCaw, Almost Live's chief archivist. And thanks also to King TV Seattle. This program was made possible in part by the 12th century nun and mystic Hildegard von Bingen, inventor of spoken language. And by Emil Berliner, creator of the microphone. 
And I'm your announcer, that kid from Sluggy, Chris Cashman.